Um, a friend of mine who's an atheist sent me this video. Let's see if I can get this to work. It works until you come and stand up here, and then it like, oh wait, perfect. He sent me this video. for it. It goes on like this for quite some time. Um, and so my atheist friend sent this to me. Obviously, it's been dubbed over the Imperial March. They added a lightsaber and lightning, but it's in a church service. And he's like, what the heck is happening here? Except he didn't use heck. He used stronger language. But he's like, what is happening here? The pastor in this clip is famous televangelist Benny Hen, who early, earlier this year he released a tearful video apologizing for his theatrics and manipulation in order to make money. In this video, uh, Pastor Hen says, you know, I've made the gospel into a way to make money, and anything I could do to draw attention to myself and my empire. Um, so that's one side of what we're going to talk about today. But on another side, I was at a conference a few years ago, and a group of pastors uh, were standing around talking, and one had very charismatic positions about the faith, and he began arguing with another person who came from a more reformed background, who wanted... Uh, who took a different position, and then a third guy came in and was trying to be the mediator between the two positions, and he said, if God can heal the sick and speak through us and do wonders and miracles in our services and in our midst, wouldn't we want that? Aren't you afraid that we're missing something? And when it comes to the Holy Spirit in American churches, there seems to be like two extreme positions. There seems to be two common mistakes. One, a church is dead and lifeless, and rather than beg the Holy Spirit to come in and do something in us and stir up a new fire, we just insist, like, he doesn't do that, he doesn't move anymore, like, the Holy Spirit's kind of an idea, but practically we don't see him do anything. Or two, the other mistake seems to be to go in the other extreme and believe the Spirit works in the exact same way in every church, in every age, in every land, that everything we see in Scripture should be repeated in every church— and when it doesn't happen, you've got to do some things to try to manufacture these movements so it looks like the Spirit's moving. In both cases, I think the churches take low views of the Holy Spirit. Over the next few weeks, we're going to continue exploring the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does, how we can practically live in communion with him in our everyday lives. We're going to look at the fruits of the Spirit and spiritual gifts. We're going to get all, to all that in the next few weeks. But today, we're going to explore the idea of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. And both these expressions of church place a special emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and in some cases, a unique baptism in the Spirit. So first, we'll talk about Pentecostalism, 
and then we'll talk about its younger cousins, the charismatic movement, and finally we'll talk about what we can learn from these branches of Christianity, and at the same time, things that we should be cautious about with both of these. So where does the name Pentecostal come from? Well, the Bible. They just didn't pull it out of thin air. In Acts 2, verses 1 through 8, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This is all the followers of Jesus after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be little tongues of fire that separated and came to rest over each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem at this time, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in, be in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? They're like, how do Galileans know more languages? Galileans aren't smart. They aren't educated. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Pentecost was the Jewish celebration of Shabbat, which occurred 50 days after Passover, hence the Greek name Pentecost. Penta means 50 in Greek. It's considered a major Jewish festival held on the 6th and the 7th of the month of Savan. 50 days after the second day of Passover. So it was originally a harvest festival, but it came to be a time to celebrate the giving of the law, the Torah. Now on this day, the early church had gathered together and this violent whirlwind breaks out in their midst. Apparently loud enough that people came and wanted to figure out what was going on. One commentator said it's likely, it was similar to like a tornado touching down in their living room. And then these little fires appeared above their heads, and they proceeded to speak in languages they had never learned. And Jews from across the Roman Empire had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And so when they came together, they began to hear the language of their native country rather than the language of um, the Hebrew language. They began to hear the story of Jesus in their native tongue. Now, being far from home, and hearing your native language immediately gets your attention. Um, I spent some time over in India, and there are 66 different dialects uh, spoken in India. I didn't speak any of them. I learned a few words while I was over there. Um, but occasionally you would hear someone speaking English, and it was like, someone's speaking my language. I can communicate with them. I can talk to them. It like immediately made you feel at home. And so these people, hearing their native languages, were drawn in, and many listened and accepted the message and became students of Jesus' way of life. Now, this is a weird story. Like, it's just it. It sounds outlandish and absurd. Tongues of fire over people's heads. I, I just want you to know, if fire appears over your head right now, I'm going to freak out. Like, it, I, I'm not going to be like, oh, okay, I'm cool with this, you know? That's going to be weird. As crazy as it sounds, the Christian tradition holds that, although, although under normal circumstances we can't see it, the Holy Spirit in you is, uh, it, like, we can't see it visibly, but the Holy Spirit lives in the apprentices of Jesus. He puts a mark on them. There's a flame over your head. You belong to God. If you've sworn allegiance to King Jesus, if you committed to become an apprentice of how he lives and loves, if we had spiritual eyes for a minute to see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit would be like a divine flame surrounding you. You'd like have a fiery aura. I know as weird as that sounds. 
The Holy Spirit is a divine flame that lights our hearts in dark places. He gives us courage in the midst of despair. He's working at all times like a smelter's flame to burn off the impurities and make us pure like Christ. When the pressure of life threatens to burn you alive, remember, someone made of flame can never be burned. Now, Pentecostalism, known for its enthusiastic worship, holds that the supernatural gifts and manifestations described in the Bible are still available to Christians today. That's a key distinctive. They believe, like, if you read about it in the Bible, same thing can happen today. They believe this is especially for those who have been filled with the Spirit through an experience known as baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. These gifts and manifestations include divine healing, prophecy, and most notably, glossukaleia, or, in other words, speaking in tongues. A form of e uh, ecstatic vocalization that Pentecostals equate with the spiritual phenomenon of the event we just read, where the apostles and the early believers communicated the gospel to everyone in their native tongue. Now, Pentecostalism traces its roots back to Wesleyan-inspired holiness movements in the 19th century, and these movements, they believe that, okay, you become a follower of Jesus, great but you still sin, you still fail sometimes. If you could have the second event, well, then you could reach a place where you'd be totally sanctified. An experience subsequent after salvation that would enable you to live a sinless life. And most adherents equated sanctification with baptism in the Holy Spirit. So they're like, you're saved, great. You're not going to hell, you're going to heaven, awesome. But you need a second moment to actually become sinless. The only problem with that kind of doctrine, right? Hang out with somebody who thinks they're sinless. It doesn't take very long to realize they're not sinless, right? But that was the pre-Pentecostal movement. After making a profession of faith, they felt like you could have a unique experience that would allow you to be sinless for the rest of your life. Early Pentecostalism had no hierarchy or authoritative structures and quickly succumbed to doctrinal controversies. So you'd have two different Pentecostals who would believe very different things. By the late 19th century, the movement had broadened into an ecumenical, that means many denominations working together, multiracial movement whose most zealous advocates sought to recover the power and practices of the first century apostolic Christianity. I think that's a good thing. They were trying to get back to the early church and the passion and the power. Now, they expected the imminent second coming of Christ, which Jesus told us to be watching for his return, and they embraced uninhibited worship, which if you go back to many of the early American worship services, you look at people like the Puritans, there used to be people who would walk around with long sticks with a club on the end, and if you fell asleep in church, they would whack you with it. I mean, church services weren't exactly exciting times. They went on for hours and hours and were boring. So I think a lot of these changes were good and necessary things. In the 1960s, we get neo-Pentecostalism, also known as the Charismatic Movement, which began stirring throughout denominational churches, where a lot of Pentecostals had broken off from their, their own denominations to create new Pentecostal denominations. The Charismatic Movement worked inside established denominational structures. The name for the Charismatic Movement comes from the Latin word charismata, which means gift of grace, which is the term used for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. As the charismatic movement developed, significant theological differences with classical Pentecostalism emerged, and there were clear distinctions between the two. 
Just because you're Pentecostal doesn't mean you were part of the charismatic movement. Just because you're part of the charismatic movement didn't mean you were Pentecostal. But concern was also expressed that charismatics had come to emphasize an experience without major attention to belief and doctrine and were uniting people in different theologies. Some of this was good, right? People from different faiths, or different Christian faiths were working together because they wanted to see the power and the movement of God. But what happens when you get different Christians together who have different foundational beliefs about what it looks like to follow Jesus? Disagreements, arguments, and sometimes you're saying contradictory things. So the charismatic movement was working within many different Christian denominations, and many times these groups had very little in common except for an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, meaning that their doctrine was inconsistent. You could look at the charismatic movement over here and over here, and they might be saying wildly different things. But they were united by a shared experience of being baptized in the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit, or also known as baptism by the Spirit or baptism with the Spirit, is presented as an experience of infilling and empowering by the Holy Spirit, which transforms a person's life. As well as being an inner working of the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Spirit is an outward manifestation into the realm of that which can be seen or heard. Um, People often describe it, or charismatics often describe it as being accompanied by physical manifestations such as great heat, the sensation of a current of power passing through the body, a feeling of intense joy, sometimes the healing of a physical ailment, and frequently speaking in tongues. There's a vivid awareness of the immediate presence of God, and many find that after their baptism in the Spirit, it marks a turning point in their Christian lives, initiating a greater concern with spiritual matters and deeper Christian commitment. Now, classical Pentecostalism, anybody just bored out of your mind? I know this is a lot of history. Okay. Classical Pentecostalism has always pointed to speaking in tongues as the initial evidence that an individual has received baptism in the Spirit. So, I grew up in Tennessee. Uh, the church or that I was at before I moved up here was one city over from Cleveland, Tennessee, where the Church of God was founded, which is a Pentecostal denomination. The Church of God denom- uh, denomination had churches all over our area. They had a uh, big college, university, and seminary. So I constantly ran, a, it ran into people who belonged to Church of God churches. And many of them, we would start talking about Jesus. We would start talking about the Bible. And uh, we'd be like, oh, we're on the same page. We're friends. Like, we're both Christians. We want to see our co-workers come to Christ and stuff. And then we'd eventually reach a point where they'd be like, oh, have you spoken in tongues? I'd be like, no. I was like, that's not my gift. And they're like, oh. They'd, like, take a step away from me. Because in their mind, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you've never been filled with the Spirit. If you've never been filled with the Spirit, you might not have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. I know. Yeah, they were like scared. And so many times, friends of mine who were helping me talk to my fellow co-workers about Jesus, or were joining me for a community Bible study, or were doing service in the community, suddenly they would take a step back when they learned I hadn't spoken in tongues. Because to the Pentecostals, If you haven't spoken in tongues, you haven't been filled with the Spirit. If you haven't been filled with the Spirit, you might not have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a follower of Jesus. So, in many ways, the greatest danger of these movements is that people can often look to emotional experiences for assurances of their faith. When it came down to that, when I asked them about what saved them, they would usually point to speaking in tongues rather than pointing to Jesus. 
And they knew ultimately Jesus had died for them. They had the right theology. But sometimes it can get us pointed in the wrong direction. Now, unlike Pentecostalism, many participants in the charismatic movement have found this emphasis on tongues disturbing or unnecessary, and they don't agree that every person baptized in the Spirit is able to speak in tongues, nor should they expect to do so. Charismatics don't argue that no one should speak in tongues. And in fact, if you go to a charismatic church, many times people will be speaking in tongues. They just believe that not everyone, that, not everyone has that gift, and not everyone can be expected to display that gift. I think that's a much healthier approach. Evidence of the baptism in the Spirit is increasingly sought in the areas of personal holiness, the fruits of the Spirit, and the witness in words, witness to the words and life of Jesus Christ. And so I think these are much healthier things to look at. Like, if you've been filled with the Spirit, if God is living in you, you should be seen in personal holiness and the fruits of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, and in your life, when you witness words and how you become like Jesus. Okay, that was quite an introduction. Everybody still with me? It's a lot of history. We could spend semesters on church history just unpacking that. That's a really rough, fast, loose history, an overview of the movements and their key beliefs. Everybody's still here? We're good. Okay. So, today I want to ask, are we missing something? That's what my pastor friend asked those people arguing uh, at the conference I was at. He asked, are we missing something? Do these movements represent something that we're missing? Charismatic churches are the fastest growing churches in America. As the attractional models of church that reach boomers and Gen X continue to plateau and decline, as cool church dies, charismatic churches are growing. Is there something in Pentecostalism? If there's something in the charismatic movement that we should embrace that we haven't. Now, I grew up in churches that practice cessationism. That's not like sensationalism where it's a sensation, but cessationism, which means it's like the word cease, cessationism, cessationism. The doctrine that the profound gifts and actions of the spirit have ceased, that the spirit doesn't do stuff anymore like that. That God did wondrous things through the Spirit working in people in the Bible, but now the situation changed, and the Spirit's like, oh, no, I don't do that anymore. I have different tactics. This idea developed in the Reformation originally as a counter-argument to the miracles done by the Catholics. And this idea became increasingly popular with the rise of dispensationalism. And I know you're like, what is this seminary course, Alex? What is dispensationalism? It's a big theology word that was created in the 50s to... Uh, that just means time periods. It argues that human history can be divided into different time periods and that God works differently in each period because his objectives change in each period. I don't think dispensationalism is true, but there are people who buy into it. Now, I remember asking my pastor, why can't it be like the book of Acts? Like I was sitting in our church services every Sunday and we had church services Sunday night Wednesday night Bible study, meetings after meetings after meetings. I was there all the time, and I'm like, this is so boring. Honestly, I was committed. I loved Jesus. I, wanted, I was learning everything I can about the Bible. I was in seminary, and I was like, I come in, I'm like, this is so boring. They play music, and I'm like, this sounds like funeral music. They get up and talk for 45 minutes to 65 minutes every Sunday, and I'm like, this is so boring. 
And you can tell the pastor himself was bored by what he's talking about and just starts repeating the same things over and over. And if you've heard five of the sermons, you've heard all of the sermons, you know. And I asked him, I sat down with the senior pastor, and I said, why can't it be like the book of Acts? Because the book of Acts, some crazy stuff happens. Some people come in and they're like, here's a gift for the church. And Paul, uh, Peter's like, is this all the gift? And they're like, yes. But they actually kept back some for themselves, and the Holy Spirit kills them. That's some wild stuff happens in the book of Acts. But there's also a lot of really cool stuff that happens. And I'm like, yeah, it's messy and it's all over the place, but it's a lot better than just being dead and boring. Like, it never looked boring. And here's what he said to me. He says, um, the Spirit acted in a vibrant way for a limited time to get the church started. Now that it's up and running, you don't need that kickstart anymore, you know? And uh, now we can rely on the word of God. Now we have buildings and money and seminaries, so we don't need the spirit doing supernatural things anymore. Man, I just don't buy that. I think we still need the spirit doing supernatural things, because if the church isn't supernatural, it's a waste of time. If the spirit doesn't meet with us, what are we doing? If the spirit doesn't empower us, if he doesn't give us the words to say to our friends and neighbors and family... And what are we going to, like, we have nothing. We need a supernatural movement of God. Instead of falling on our knees and begging God to send fire from heaven, I, I wish my senior pastor had wept with me and we had got down on the knees in his office and prayed and said, Holy Spirit, make our church come alive. We're sorry that it's so dead. Fill us. Shake us. Instead, many churches shake the dying coals and say, Oh, look, a spark. God must be doing something different, though. It's a different time. Instead of admitting we might have a problem, we'd rather argue that God has changed his approach. The only problem with this, of course, is God doesn't change. People do. It says over and over in the Bible. Here's just two examples. Malachi 3.6. For I am Yahweh, I do not change. This is the reason that you children of Jacob do not get destroyed. In Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he should change his mind. What he says, he will do. If he speaks, he will fulfill it. So where did we get this idea? That, like, the Spirit doesn't really get involved too much anymore. Like, he's out there. He's a good influence, but he's just kind of in the background. Um, where did this idea that certain expressions of the Spirit's presence and power were for a limited time and place? Like I said, it goes back to the Reformation. And, in fact, it goes back to John Kelvin. During the Protestant Reformation... The Catholic Church continued to report and celebrate miracles. So people were leaving the Catholic Church and going to Protestant churches. But the Catholic Church was like, hey, we're still seeing miracles happen. Uh, miracles are being done through priests and saints and people in the community. And um, John Kelvin was like, this is going to hurt people leaving there and coming to us. So I need to come up with some kind of argument about why these miracles aren't what they seem. So John Calvin began to develop a doctrine of cessationism, and it was primarily in the Calvinist tradition that this doctrine was developed. The argument was that as the gifts of the Spirit must have necessarily ceased at the end of the apostolic age, it followed that the claims of miracles and healings by the Catholic Church should be met with skepticism and should not be used by believers to determine God's favor. In other words, the Reformers were not reading their Bibles and they came across these verses, and they're like, oh my gosh, miracles are over. We're past that. That's not what happened. Instead, 
they were trying to come up with an argument to get people to reject the miracles that they saw so that they would side with them. And then they found a way, they made an argument in order to win the debate. They wanted to win an argument and formed a doctrine in order to do so. We must be so careful that we don't go to the Bible wanting to win an argument and so twisting scripture to fit what we wanted to say, rather than going to scripture and saying, Lord, reveal yourself to me. They were willing to potentially discredit actual acts of God in order to convince more people to side with them. So, you might be saying, okay, wow. What a mess. Christianity is all over the place, right? It's a wide umbrella that has lots of variety. One of the reasons I like it. But what's our position here at Horizon? Are we sensationists? Are we charismatic? Like, which extreme do we fall into? We take a moderate position here at Horizon. It's the open but cautious continualizationism that views the full range of spiritual gifts are still possible. Um, they're not given exclusively in the first century. They didn't just end with the apostles. The Spirit can still work through us and work in us and in our community. But we hold that it's not necessarily promised in every place and every time in church history. And you say, why? Because I've seen too often when religious organizations manipulate emotions and call it the Spirit. If we say the Spirit has to work the same way in every place and every time and in every church, what I find is when he doesn't, we begin to manipulate it. It's easy to have an emotional movement and call it a spiritual moment. It's too easy when you say every church in every age needs to have the exact same expressions of the Spirit to manufacture what you don't see. So, I think it can be dangerous to say, at the other extreme, that the Spirit of God is only allowed to work in certain ways in our midst. I don't want to miss out on anything that the Holy Spirit has for me just because my theological framework is too small to hold an infinite God. I want to leave room for the Spirit to move. I want to leave room for him to surprise us without insisting that he do it in the way that I want, the way that I'm familiar with, or the way that I feel comfortable with. At the same time, I think it's dangerous to demand that the Spirit work in the same way he has in other places at other times. I want him to be creative and original, and if he doesn't want to do things exactly like he has somewhere else, that's fine, but I don't want to insist he can only work within my small little box. My experience with charismatic churches is that they often, or that they occasionally have rare but genuinely powerful movements of the Spirit that are life-giving and miraculous, but... They end up spending the rest of their time trying to recreate and replicate those organic moments. And often their entire gatherings and teachings become about how, how, how they can manufacture those rare moments again. They have this special moment and they're constantly every Sunday trying to have it again. These moments can become a distraction instead of becoming an empowering moment that keeps us going out and reaching and connecting with people and bringing the good news of Jesus. It somehow becomes a distraction that keeps us from becoming like Jesus and doing what he did. We're not saved for ourselves. Jesus isn't like, hey, you're saved for you, for your emotional highs. We're not given spiritual gifts for our own comfort. We have been given a great mission to join the spirit where he is working in the world, to introduce men and women and boys and girls to Jesus, to make students of how he lived and loved because his life sets people free. When we chase emotional moments, when we chase emotional moments, even moments with the Spirit, 
At some point, I think it's human nature, we start chasing emotional moments without the Spirit. Our goal is to chase God, not just chase the emotional high of being with God. And sometimes in our churches, those two things can be confused. When Darby and I were dating, we were super nervous. Uh, before our first date, how long do you go without eating? Uh, yeah, it was like days, maybe like a week. She lost from the time I asked her out to the time I took her out. That's how nervous she was. I was so nervous, I just sweat through all my clothes every day, thinking about going on this date. When we actually went on the date, I showed up at her house, my shirt was just soaking wet, because I just was so sweaty. I was so nervous, sweaty. Um, I remember on that first date, I asked to hold her hand. It was like holding a hand dipped in oil. I was so sweaty and nervous. I was like, can I hold your hand? And it was just like drip, it's disgusting. Like I'm amazed that she even held that disgusting, sweaty hand. I was sweating like a pig, I was so nervous. Those jitters, the emotional rush of a first date don't last forever. And that's good. Like, can you imagine if they did? Darby would starve to death. She would not be here. Can you imagine me? Every time I'd wake up and I'd see Darby next to me in bed, I'd just be in a full pig sweat. It'd be disgusting. If that's how it was to be married, we would never get anything done. The emotional high of dating is designed to turn into the maturity of marriage. We're about to celebrate our ninth year, our ninth anniversary. We know each other so much better than we did back then. When we got married, I loved the idea of Darby. Now I know who she is. I know her. I love Darby, not just the idea of her. Just like chasing the emotional highs of dating will chase you out of the arms of your spouse, chasing the emotional highs of the spirit will chase you out of the arms of Jesus. I'm grateful that there's moments where the spirit moves you and your emotions are high and you feel like Jesus is so close you can touch him. Those are great. But we can't just chase an idea of Jesus. We can't just chase, chase the emotion of Jesus. We need to embrace the actual Jesus. And every Christian um, branch of Christianity in the world talks about moments when you're like, God used to feel so close, and now I'm walking where a season where he feels distant or he feels far away, that my life feels empty. What happened to him? It is sometimes in those moments that we find the real Jesus who is deeper than just the emotional idea of Jesus we've created. So here's where I think we still have some things to learn from the charismatic movement. Our Western churches have been shaped by the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment really taught that humans are brains on a stick. It's a very famous quote from an Enlightenment thinker. Humans are just brains on a stick. And if you go around the way our schools work, the way our churches work, the way most things work in the Western world is that we think people are brains on a stick. And many of our services have become intellectual lectures, like this, sorry, uh, that require little interaction with your body. In the biblical imagination, a soul was your spirit and your body. One without the other is incomplete. Most American churches are ministering to the brain and ignoring the body. That's why we don't teach the spiritual disciplines. That's why we don't teach uh, fasting and Sabbath and prayer and sacrifice and self-denial because in our western framework for reality worship is mental because you're a brain on a stick you're not a body it's not physical but it's actually according to the biblical authors both jesus in mark 12 30 love the lord your god with all your heart with your entire soul with all your mind 
and with all your strength. I think churches in the West have been really good at worshiping Jesus with our mind, but now it's time to put our strength behind our worship. I think one of the most profound shifts we can make is to incorporate our bodies into our service. We are not just brains on a stick. This might look like kneeling to pray, dancing as you sing, putting your hands on someone when you pray for them, involving your body. I don't think the charismatic movement gets everything right, but I think they have stumbled onto an important truth. Worship requires both your mind and your body. One without the other is incomplete. It cannot simply be a mental experience. There has to be a physical experience, too. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, lead us to worship, not just with our heads, not just with our hearts, but with our bodies. May we not simply mentally affirm the things are true. May we act on them. May we move our bodies in response to your truth. Like the flames of Pentecost set our hearts on fire, light the world through us. We don't want dead religion. Don't leave us with powerless meanings with no sign of the supernatural. Surprise us. Do wonders for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray.